The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Paragraph 5 here begins by recalling several truths that were previously addressed in the confession, showing, uh, and we'll, we'll see, there's many different chapters and paragraphs that come out here. And that shows us the interconnectedness of our doctrine, that we don't just have independent ideas that are sort of hung out there uh, on their own, uh, but there is a unifying element to all of them. In God's perfect wisdom and plan, the individual parts of doctrine are intricately related to the whole. And so the opening words of paragraph 5 are predicated upon the opening statement of paragraph 4. It says, since all power for the calling, institution, order of government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. In, in the Lord Jesus Christ, so we see the power that is given in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, his power is executed in a specific manner. And what is that manner? Well, the paragraph explains that the Lord Jesus Christ calls out of the world onto himself those that are given onto him by his Father. So there's an instrumentality here. There's an instrument that is used for regeneration. This is what uh, is being explained here. This work of regeneration that happens through what we call the effectual calling. And the effectual calling of God is explained in chapter 10 of our confession as the instrumentality by which believers are regenerated to new life in Christ in God's appointed and accepted time. And so we have to ask, what are those means? Well, the means of the effectual calling, the means by which God calls people onto himself this paragraph says, is through the ministry of his word and by his spirit. And again, that's addressed multiple times through our confession, chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 14. Uh, John Calvin, I think, is really helpful here. I've always found this very uh, useful in thinking through this. He identifies the, what he calls the indissoluble union of word and spirit. And so he shows that when there is an emphasis placed on the spirit over the word, then you end up with much fanaticism. Uh, This is generally uh, what we see uh, in uh, a lot of charismatic circles, that the emphasis is always on the spirit. It's void of the word. Oftentimes the word is never even referred to in some of those circles. But the opposite error is also Uh, present, and that is an overemphasis on the Word without any dependence upon the Spirit. And so I like the language that Calvin uses here to say that Word and Spirit have an indissoluble union, that you cannot take the two apart from one another, lest uh, you make make the Word ineffective uh, to your Christian life, and lest uh, you... you, uh, pull away from what uh, the Spirit is actually uh, doing as we read and study and seek to apply His Word. And so, when the Word of God is rightly comprehended and accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit in an individual's heart, the Lord Jesus is effectually calling 
people onto himself. In other words, the Spirit of God does not work independent of the Word of God, nor does the Word of God have any spiritual benefit apart from the Holy Spirit. And we learn in Romans 10, as the Apostle Paul writes, for faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so, we have to always understand that reality. And I encourage you as you go to do your Bible reading, that you're praying to God and asking for the Holy Spirit's help. That you're asking that the Holy Spirit would illuminate the scriptures. That's one of his, uh, that's one of his works. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us in part, is illuminate the scriptures that we might see and understand what it is that he has for us. And so these individuals that Christ effectually calls are those, the confession says, that are given to him by the Father. And again, we see this talked about in paragraph 3, uh, excuse me, chapter 3, uh, chapter 8, chapter 14, chapter 17. Uh, this comes up again and again. And we read just recently in our morning worship um, scripture reading, John chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus is praying to the Father on behalf of his people, and he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the whole world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. So you see how many times in just a few short verses, Jesus refers to the fact that the Father has given the people of God to the Son. And you can think of it as us being a love gift from the Father to the Son, or the bride that is given by the Father to the bridegroom, who will provide her with love and protection and provision. And so, uh, if you've ever, I would assume not the case with most of you, but some people, uh, they think that when we uh, perform a wedding, that the idea of a father walking his daughter down the aisle and giving her away to the man to whom she will marry is just some kind of tradition, uh, but we're, we're depicting something in that picture. Uh, if we think of the Bible as a wedding story um, of God the Father giving a bride away to the son, that's exactly what we're depicting in that part of the wedding. And uh, we should emphasize that and highlight that and make sure we, we understand what that is, that this love gift is being given uh, to this bridegroom who has responsibilities toward her. And of course, uh, Jesus Christ is the one that we look to as, uh, as the ultimate husband for his bride, as the bridegroom that cares for, loves, provides, and protects his church. So the resulting effect is that the people of God... Our confession says, may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribes to them in his word. Again, we see that in chapter 11 and 16. So the Lord Jesus indicates, he tells us, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. And that it is the responsibility of the church to teach his people to observe all that Christ has commanded. We see that in the Great Commission. So the Apostle Paul identifies that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, the Apostle John emphasizes obedience as evidence of true Christian conversion. He writes, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so paragraph five tells us that it is Jesus's authority over the church that the, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ effectually calls people into his church, those whom the Father has given to him through the ministry of word and spirit that they might walk in obedience to all that he has commanded in his word. And so you see the interconnected nature of all of these elements that we have looked at. We have the Father giving a people to the Son, the Son then calling them to himself effectually through the word and the spirit. They are then regenerated and in so regenerating their hearts, they now walk in obedience to what the Lord has commanded. All of those elements are present in uh, the calling and life of a Christian. If any of those elements are missing, then we do not have a true conversion. All of this will be present in a believer's life as they walk with the Lord. So the paragraph goes on to identify that those thus called will walk together in particular societies or churches. In other words, what is implied here is that it is impossible to walk in obedience to God apart from a vital relationship to a local church in most instances. Now, I say in most instances, uh, and um, this I want to say very carefully, um, but there may be times when Christians are unable to immediately be united with a local church because perhaps they live in a context wherein uh, there is no orthodox Bible preaching, gospel proclaiming local church that has been established. So think, for example, if uh, you have a missionary on a frontier mission field where there are no converts, there are no churches, he's preaching the gospel, and now there is a, there is a new convert. Well, there's no church to point that person to who's been converted, and, uh, and so we would have to Uh, conclude that they're not being disobedient to the Lord because they don't have a local church that they're a part of. They simply don't have the opportunity to do so yet. So we have to, we have to recognize that there is, uh, there is that issue, but even in that case, every effort should be made to plant a new local church when the need arises immediately, that the people of God might gather uh, with other Christians to, to, uh, to worship the Lord and to enjoy all the benefits of being a part of his church. The Bible repeatedly emphasizes the individual believer's relationship with God and the indwelling presence in the hearts of his people. We see that over and over. 
But as a result of that, the love of God can be perfected in the hearts of his people. But the emphasis of the New Testament is the indwelling presence of God in a collective family of hearts called the church. Now, there are various ways we see the church referred to in the New Testament, most often explaining to us that it's not the universal church that's being addressed, primarily, at least uh, in the first instances of uh, the letters being written and them being received, but it's local assemblies. And we see all the ways that the early church was meeting together. We see uh, that they met in believers' homes, and as they did that, they would regularly meet for uh, fellowship and for worship, for the breaking of bread, uh, for uh, the Lord's Supper. And when the church is referred to in relation to a particular city, we see that over and over, Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Philippi, all of these cities, it's reasonable to assume that the local churches within that particular region are being addressed. Especially when there's references to multiple churches within that city. And so the letter written by the apostles would have been received in a local church. Uh, they would, the pastor would read it to the congregation, and then the letter would be taken to the next local church, and it would be read to that congregation. It would be circulated around the city, and then presumably passed on to the churches in the next city. And so these were letters to churches. Now, the Apostle Paul draws out this, uh, the important necessity of the church being gathered in the local assembly by utilizing the illustration of the human body. He writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so we understand the illustration. A human body is made up of many members, and without those varied members, it ceases to be a body that functions as it has been designed. And so Paul continues, he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them, as he chose. If you were a single member, where would the body be? As it is. There are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And so Paul's conclusion to all of this is to say, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And so there simply is no justification whatsoever to be found in the Bible for an individualistic approach to the Christian life. There is no sense in which the Christian life is to be understood that we live uh, as a people who say, I have my Bible and I have Jesus and that is all that I need. 
he ties his people as members to the body in the church, and that is an essential part of the Christian life. And so the confession goes on and addresses this, saying that the particular societies or churches that the called people of God are commanded to walk together with are for our mutual edification. And so the implication of the confessional statement is that local churches do not just exist to provide a gathering place for the people of God to perform our spiritual duties, but rather it establishes the context in which the people of God share in a mutually edifying relationship with one another. And we, we see that worked out again in uh, Paul's letters. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And so you can think of this, again, this is within the context of his illustration of the body. Right? We understand this. If you hit your thumb with a hammer, your whole body responds to that, right? Every, everything in you, you stop thinking about uh, you know, your sore back for a moment or whatever uh, may be going on, um, and all of your attention goes to that thumb, right? Even the words you're hoping not to say when that happens. All attention is going uh, to that thumb because when one member of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And likewise, we can say the same with our rejoicing. When our, our heart is glad, uh, when we've experienced something of, of true joy that's manifest in, in everything of our body. Yeah, I may be sore, I may have uh, certain other issues, but in this moment as I consider my joy, my whole, my whole person responds to that. And this is the illustration Paul draws out of the church, that if one of our members is suffering, that we all, in a sense, are suffering together with them. We can think of um, even in the, the death of a person who might be in the body of Christ. That hurts all of us. We are all pained by that. Uh, if someone you know, finds out that, uh, they, that something is going on in them and they experience a season of suffering, we all suffer alongside them, in a sense. Not in that we physically feel their pain, uh, but now we are called on to uh, adjust our attention, to focus on that person, to care for that member in giving of our lives and ourselves and our resources for their benefit and for their good. And so this is the responsibility that we, we have in the church. And so the lives of God's people in the local church ought to be so intricately woven together that it would be inconceivable that any one member of the church would be unknown and isolated from the other members. The proof text for mutual edification in our confession, um, many might find it confusing, but the writers of our confession uh, cited Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, when referring to mutual edification. This is, of course, where Jesus outlines the process for the church to exercise church discipline when a brother or sister might be found in sin. 
And so he goes on to tell us that members of Christ's body, we have an obligation to settle our differences with one another and with the goal, the aim of that uh, process that he lays out is for the restoration of the one who is found in sin. So you recall, he tells us if your brother sins against you, then you go to him one-on-one and you make that known. Brother, you've sinned against me and here is how that is. Perhaps he doesn't even realize it. Perhaps he doesn't know. And in my own life experience, almost every time this takes place, this results in reconciliation and we continue to walk together in love and mutual edification. That is the goal. However, Jesus tells us if, uh, if he's resistant to that approach and there is no reconciliation that results from that, then go and get two or three others uh, to come and hear the facts of the matter and help those two parties to, to work it out, to determine uh, what is to be done there. Now, of course, what should be implied in all of that is you don't go find two or three people uh, that you know are just going to agree with you because they're your buddies and they would never go against anything that you think or say. You don't want yes men in this situation. You want wise, godly Christians who will hear the situation and who, are, uh, who have enough courage to tell you, well, either party, who is at fault and, uh, and how we can work to resolve this and bring restoration to the relationship. Uh, but say you get the two or three others, you go to this brother who's in sin, it's determined that he is indeed in sin and he continues to resist the advances of those who've come to him uh, to bring about reconciliation. And so then Jesus tells us to take it to the church. He says, tell the church and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so what Jesus is saying there is that when one is repeatedly confronted in their sin in this escalating manner, if a professing believer continues in unrepentance, they are acting as an unbeliever and they should be considered as such until a time as they repent and seek to be restored to the body of Christ. And when this is rightly employed... Church discipline is blessed by Christ Jesus and it assures his church that he is in their midst. He tells us that in verse 20 of Matthew 18. Now again, the goal of church discipline, as stated by Jesus, is to gain a brother from his sin. Reconciliation is the goal. That's why he calls us to do discipline. But this can only happen in the context of a rightly ordered local church. Without the framework of a local church where the church is able to decisively utilize the keys to the kingdom, meaningful accountability is impossible. We can't, we can't do that. It would, seem, it would seem odd, perhaps, that church discipline is what the writers of the confession identify as a proof text for mutual edification in the church, but the implication is that a church takes, taking seriously the commands of Christ, even in the most difficult circumstances, the most difficult situations, will grow together in faith and love and unity, and Lord willing, through that process, will gain a brother. 
one who has been in sin will repent and be returned to the fold. And so it makes perfect sense that they would identify this as a proof text for mutual edification. Part of our mutual edification, and this is important, is that we are holding one another accountable, that we are watching out for one another's souls. Not, we're not sort of spying into everyone's life and trying to find sin wherever we can so we can point it out and I get one up on you and you get one up on me. It's not, that's not what we're after here, but that when we see sin being worked out in a person's life, that we love them enough because they're a part of the body that we uh, suffer with and that we rejoice with, that we will be willing to go and confront that sin and seek to make things right. And so, From there, local churches are also commanded to be committed to the due performance of that public worship which he requires from them in the world. Now, of course, there's an entire chapter in our confession dealing with uh, worship, but what we see here is that every local church has a responsibility or a duty to engage in public worship. And part of the reason that God requires the church to gather for worship is to testify to the world the glory of God and to proclaim his gospel. Again, this is the means by which he is effectually calling people onto himself. Now, the confession does not include a chapter on missions or church planting. And often the question is asked, why would that be? But I believe that the implication of this concluding statement is that the gospel is to be preached to the ends of the earth, as we see in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. I think a very helpful uh, quote from uh, John Piper here. It says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal of missions. In other words, missions and church planting are essential to fulfill what the confession is calling us to, the due performance of that public worship which he requires of Christians in the world. We can't establish local churches in new and foreign lands without the work of missions. Now, uh, it's been suggested that if the confession is ever um, uh, updated for a modern uh, church, Uh, that maybe perhaps we would include something with regard to missions and church planning. I have no problem with that, but I do think that it is being addressed here, at least by implication. And so the Apostle Paul makes it clear that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Well, what is the only remedy for that lawlessness and rebellion against God if the gospel is the power of God onto salvation? It is, of course, the gospel. And Paul goes on to explain that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Brothers and sisters, the world is desperate for God's remedy. But apart from God's special revelation, there is no hope for salvation. For faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so Paul anticipates in all of this that one might ask, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And so, of course, what he is pushing us to see is that the gospel is to be proclaimed throughout the entire world. And in so doing, Christians should have every expectation that God will save sinners in the manner in which we just looked at from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And so since Christians must unite themselves with the local church, church planning and missions around the world is an absolute imperative. We cannot function as God intended in the local church without emphasizing missions and church planting. It is the responsibility of the church to do that. We must do that. And Praise God that we are able to do that. And that, you know, for those who wonder, what is really, what is our relationship as a church to something like the Reformed Baptist Network? It's not a denomination, but it's a network of churches that we belong to. Uh, and we, uh, we encourage each other and we pray for one another and all of those things. But this is the primary goal of the network. It's stated in this mission statement of the network that we are working together to provide support for missionaries and for church planting. That's why we do that, because there are churches that are very small, they have very limited resources, and they're not able to support 20 or more missionaries around the world like we have the opportunity of doing here. And so uh, part of that support that we give to some missionaries is through the network, through Uh, through those relationships that we have with those other churches. And so now you have local churches working together to fulfill this calling and this mission uh, that God has given to the church. We must, brethren, we must be committed to the work of the gospel around the world through missions and church planting. And Lord willing, he gives us uh, more years on this earth and and more resources to be able to continue to do that. Uh, far and wide. So this is the paragraph on the establishment of local churches. It then goes into church membership in paragraph six. It says, the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto the call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and one to another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. So the statement of paragraph two that we looked at previously 
regarding the constituents of the visible church is now expanded here in paragraph six to provide specific direction regarding the minimal requirements of church membership. So the first thing we see is that uh, church membership is for Christians. Again, it says the members of these churches are saints by calling. And by the way, the identification of, of saints there is very uh, specific because it's refuting an error that we see in Roman Catholicism where only some people are considered saints. We're all saints if we're in Christ. Visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience onto the call of Christ. So we, we see that it is impossible to determine, it's important to remember, it's impossible to determine the spiritual condition of an individual's heart. However, This paragraph suggests that the criteria that the church should utilize in order to examine the credibility of a person seeking membership in the church is that they are visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience onto that call of Christ that we talked about previous. It's uh, the Lord Jesus calls out of the world onto himself those who are given onto him by the Father. And so every local church should recognize that Christians will display varying degrees of sanctification. And so we have to be careful to not assume that there is a standard for membership within a local church that extends beyond reasonable evidence that the individual understands the gospel and is by the grace of God seeking to live a faithful Christian life. That's the requirement for church membership. You believe the gospel and you're seeking to live a faithful Christian life. To continue to heap requirements on top of that is in essence you're telling a person, well, because you don't believe these additional things, we we don't believe you're a Christian. Now obviously uh, if there's a heresy involved or, or those kinds of things, that's a separate issue. But if we can determine this person's they profess faith in Christ, and it is evidenced by the manner in which they are seeking to walk, then they are eligible for membership in the church. However, the Apostle John explains that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So one's profession of faith should align with this observable desire to outwardly manifest obedience to the teaching of Scripture. Again, our our journey with the Lord, our, uh, where we are in terms of our sanctification, it's going to vary from person to person. Some have been Christians for a very long time. Some were just converted. And we can't expect that one Christian life is going to look identical to another uh, as a result of that. We still have learning and growing to do, and that is a lifelong process. And so we have to be very careful that we're not imposing on a person what the Lord does not impose uh, to allow them to be a part of the church. Confession also explains that church membership is voluntary. It says they do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ. It is a voluntary agreement to give oneself to a local assembly to walk together in the Christian life. In other words, no church should ever seek to impose membership on a believer. However, all believers should understand the vital necessity of being a member of a local church in obedience to the teachings of scriptures. 
It is according to the appointment of Christ that churches are established and Christians become members of them. And so this statement is not saying you can join a church if you want to, but you don't have to. That's not what's being implied here. It's saying that uh, no church has the right uh, given by God to tell you you have to join this church. You are, you are free uh, to join the church uh, that you find to be most consistent with what you believe the scriptures teach and where you think you're able to serve and use your gifts and that you are being uh, mutually edified by the body of believers. <coughs> we can't come as elders and say, well, you live in our neighborhood. You live across the street from our church, so you need to be a member of our church. You don't, don't go anywhere else. You don't have that option. You need to join this church. Uh, no, it's a voluntary uh, relationship uh, that is entered into. Uh, church membership is sacrificial. Statement says, giving up themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God. This is a citation of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5, which says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. You remember, uh, this is one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Paul visits the churches in Macedonia, and when he saw what they are experiencing, he explained it as a severe test of affliction. And yet... While Paul was there, he was explaining to them uh, there are some, there's a serious need at the church in Jerusalem. And so they took part in the relief of the saints. And he says, beyond their means, of their own accord. Now, presumably, their sacrificial contribution was to help this church, these people who, their brothers and sisters in Christ, they probably never met them, probably didn't even know their names. Uh, they were experiencing a significant trial. Now, had their response been to give according to their means, Paul would have been thankful for their contribution and for their generosity. However, they exceeded what anyone even would have thought responsible or reasonable to include Paul himself. He says they, they begged for the opportunity to give more. And so their giving was directed to the Lord first. This is what Paul says. And then Paul received their gratitude for bringing the gospel to them. And so we see from this example that in a local church, the members will sacrificially give of themselves and their resources to serve the body of Christ out of thankfulness to God for all that he has done and out of a genuine love and concern for the brethren. This is the will of God. This is the biblical model of mutual service and edification. Finally, we see uh, the confession teaches us that church membership is submissive. It says, in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. Members of a local church are submitting themselves to the commands of God as found in scripture that they might live a life as Paul writes in Philippians 1, worthy of the gospel. Now, in some sense, we must say, of course, in this life, we'll never live a life that is fully worthy of the gospel. We're never worthy of the gospel. But he's implying that we would live lives uh, that are uh, displaying a holiness and a godliness about us that we are not bringing shame to the gospel. We're not bringing shame to the church. And he explains that to do this means that we as the church are standing firm in one spirit, 
to contend for the gospel as one and be like-minded in faith and manner of life to share the same love and to be one in spirit and of one mind. So what he's saying there is that instead of doing anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Christians must value others above themselves in humility, not looking to their own interests, but rather looking to the interests of others. To do so, Paul says elsewhere, is to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And he links the attitude of the members of the church to the gospel. And he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so local churches should be formally Uh, should be uh, firmly committed to obeying Christ in all things, thus creating a society of people that are willingly submitting to Christ and to one another. This is, the local church is not a place to demand that you get what you want. A place to demand that uh, I don't like this, therefore it should be changed or um, that this is not my preference and so everyone needs to submit to my preference. No, the, the call of scripture is that all of us are seeking to, uh, to submit to one another in love and in uh, a desire to maintain uh, the unity of the body, that the body would continue to grow together in, uh, in that which Christ has called us. So we are out of time. We are done with uh, paragraph six. So next time we'll pick up in paragraph seven. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you again for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the instruction that we receive from our confession of faith that so helpfully works through the scriptures and teaches us uh, the way uh, that you have called us to live in this world as your people. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us to continue to dwell together in love and unity, that we would all have hearts fixed on mutual edification and right worship as your people in the church, and that we would be solidly and faithfully committed to ensuring that the gospel is proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Help us, Lord, in continuing to support um, works of missions and church planting around the world. May you be pleased to bless those efforts to call your people onto yourself, regenerating them by the power of the word and your spirit, that they might rejoice that their names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, prepare us now to receive our time together in worship of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.